and welcome to the broadcast of Better Together, Democrats and Republicans Who Love America, episode 31. Got a lot of backlog to catch up over the weekend politically. Um, first, I want to do a little shout out for our own Michael Moore. You know, whether you are a fan of Michael Moore, can't stand Michael Moore, thinks he loves America, thinks he hates America, whatever you think about him, um, he's a critical thinker and he gets people thinking. Um, and you don't always have to agree with him. I don't always agree with him. But you can't deny that his movies make you think and challenge your, uh, your notions of our country. And he's a valuable political thinker and filmmaker <coughs> and writer and podcaster of his podcast, The Rumble. And I was sad to hear today, um, Monday the 6th of June, his recording um, talked about a, you know, it could have been a really tragic accident for him. I'm really happy to hear he's uh, going to take his health seriously and he's getting back into shape and trying to. Um, sometimes when you try to, you can go overboard or do too much or get injured or you forget the balance part of the working out. Um, which is why I was a NASA, NASA personal trainer through their accreditations because they really emphasize safety. Um, and I only recently have given up that credential as of this year, I let it expire. I've got the training in 2014 <coughs> because I researched it and it was scientifically proven to work. And also it was very methodical and very safe. So, you know, their training would have prevented Michael's injury. Um, I don't know. I kind of hard. It's hard, kind of hard to gauge what gym he was in. But he. It sounded like somebody's back garage converted into a gym that maybe really wasn't safe. He talked about he crashed down to his knees. Um, I don't know what exercise he was doing, and like right on the kneecaps. That's a lot of pain and pressure. Um, and then his head hit the, what he said, concrete, and that he heard his skull hit. Uh, it was pretty gruesome. And then he said there was like a very thin layer of protection there. So I was like, where are you working out? <laughs> Good gracious, you know. Uh, he said it was a really kind of a rustic, I don't know, place. I think maybe spend the money, Michael. I don't know if he has them. I don't know his financials, but I want Michael to be safe. Have you heard of 24-Hour Fitness, <laughs> perhaps? Goodness. Or, um, I don't know, get an awesome personal trainer if you can afford one because they're not going to, like, get you in an unsafe situation. So I was worried because from what he's, I mean, it could have been bad. He could have had a, you know, a cracked skull. I mean, I think he does have a concussion, he was saying. Yikes. We need you to be safe, Michael. We're happy that we want to work out, but, you know, injuries or setbacks, and uh, we need you alive. So, have you made friends with a swimming pool yet? It's okay if you don't know how to swim. Most don't, and I mean, there's that's why they started the adult swimming program with the U.S. Masters. I'm a level two swim coach, and, you know, you can sign up. I think it's free, or it's low cost, and learn how to swim and be safe in the water. And by the way, it'll, you know, really give you a great workout. It's the hardest part of a triathlon. 
and you were worried about your muscle loss. He was saying he was worried that he's lost 50 pounds, but he's worried he lost 50 pounds of muscle. <clears throat> and that, but he's motivated. I mean, 50 pounds is 50 pounds, no matter how you slice it off the joints. But, um, you know, swimming needs to be Michael's friend if he's having falls, you know, and that's probably related to balance and that's probably related to improper training or self-training. So Michael, we want you to live. So swim, please, in the pool with floaties if you have to, nothing wrong with it, or a kickboard, Lots of good magnesium, prevent those cramps, water, hydration, uh, jacuzzi. <laughs> My aquatic fitness book I'm writing eventually will be for you <laughs> and everybody like you and myself because I have fluctuated with weight as well. And, oh, I was just heartbroken to hear about this accident he had. It just sounded awful. So anyway, got to keep Michael going. If anyone out there in Michael's world is an awesome personal trainer, can you give him pre-training or, you know, help out, help a person out there? I don't, is he poor? I don't know. I mean, he's done a lot of movies. Maybe he can't go to a conventional gym because he'd be like swarmed with fans. But maybe somebody has a pool where he lives and could help him out. I don't know. Okay, so let's keep going here. <clears throat> let's start on a happy note so San Francisco arranged to reach a deal to allow the police to be in the parade which was nice so the mayor is back on game on um, let me write this down um, we'll go through I was happy to see that right in time for pride yeah Let's read the nitty-gritty. Cron 4. San Francisco. This was <coughs> last Thursday. SF Pride Parade reaches agreement to allow uniformed officers to march. By Aaron Tolentino. MSN.com. The group representing San Francisco LGBTQ plus officers and the organizers of the San Francisco Pride Parade have come to an agreement to allow a limited number of off uniformed officers to march in this month's Pride Parade. SF Supervisor Matt Dorsey confirmed in an email to Cron 4 on Thursday. Good old Cron 4. SF Mayor London Breed previously stated in May she would not take part in this year's parade unless uniformed officers were allowed to march. Breed said if the LGBTQ Plus, officers are welcome to march. Then she will take part in the parade on June 26. <coughs> that spokesperson said. Dorsey says now confirmed that he will join as well with support from Mayor Breed. Under the agreement, command staff, which are mandated to wear uniforms, will be in uniform for the parade. According to the email, a limited number of on-duty law enforcement officers will be in uniform. Most of the public safety contingency joining the year's Pride Parade will be in the casual department-approved Pride apparel. The Pride Board enacted its ban on uniformed officers marching in 2020, but the parade that year did not happen due to the COVID pandemic. It also did not happen in 2021 due to the pandemic. The 2022 parade marks the first time the ban has been put into action. And it doesn't explain in this article why, but I'm... Filling in the blanks, it was related to 
um, the George Floyd injustice and just the tone of the country and the police at the at that you know at that point and still and wanting to do something about it let's see let's continue on with these articles there's three of them okay this one's from patch from mark nero san francisco mayor announces oh this is a little bit different announces first drag laureate program San Francisco Mayor London Breed on June 2nd announces the creation of a new drag laureate program, including in her proposed two-year budget. Let me write that down. The program would provide a drag performer with a platform and $35,000 stipend to participate in host community events and serve as an ambassador for San Francisco to the LGBTQ arts, nightlife, and entertainment communities. <coughs> in the coming months, city ad- agencies, including Human Rights Commission, Library, Entertainment Commission, and Arts Commission, are to create a working group made up of city staff and community members to establish a program's design with the goal of naming the first ever San Francisco Drag Laureate in the fall of 2022. The working group is to develop the criteria and eligibility as well as the requirement of the position during the selection process to help support the chosen artist's work and community engagement. The San Francisco Public Library will provide the chosen artist with the $35,000 a year at least stipend, which was included in the Mayor Breach proposed budget. San Francisco's commitment to inclusivity and the arts are the foundation for who we are as a city. Breed said, drag artists have helped pave the way for LGBTQ rights and representation across our city. And we must invent, invest rather in program and invent in programs that continue their legacies and create opportunity for the next generation of drag performers to thrive. The idea for drag laureate program <coughs> stemmed from SF LGBTQ plus cultural heritage strategy, community driven effort to honor the legacy, nurture the well-being, promote economic opportunity, ensure the longevity of San Francisco. LGBTQ plus community. Then Supervisor Scott Weiner sponsored the ordinance to create the LGBTQ plus cultural heritage task force. The task force identified the needs and concerns of LGBTQ plus community, articulated critical goals to address these needs, and presented a set of recommended actions to be undertaken by the city and local organizations. Drag is central to San Francisco's rich history of self-expression, counterculture, queer activism, says Supervisor Matt Dorsey. Though drag is now a celebrated mainstream art firm, we can't lose sight of our iconic queens who for decades contributed so much to our city's cultural vibrancy, even when it was unsafe to do so. Today, we're committing to uplifting our next generation of drag queens, assuring they can continue to live and work in the city they call home and inspiring others to live authentically and proudly. (coughs) I like it. There is another one that came out today. I don't know if it's new info, but let's just give it a try and read through here. Local News Matters by... No author listed. SF police come to agreement with Pride. The organizers will participate in June 26th. This is today. 
Let's just see if there's new data. Reversing an earlier decision, San Francisco police said they will march in the city's annual Pride Parade this month. After coming to agreement with parade organizers, previously said officers would not wear the uniforms at the event. The SFPD, <clears throat> no, the SF Police Officers Pride Alliance came to the agreement with pride organizers who had voted in 2020 to ban officers in uniform after a summer of nationwide protest against police brutality. Police who had been enjoyed by the city's firefighters and sheriff's department said they would not walk in the June 26 parade because of the policy will now be part of contingent of first responders participating in the parade along with Mayor London Breed. Breed had previously announced she would not attend the parade in response to the controversy. Police Chief Bill Scott said in a statement he was very pleased about the agreement. All parties committed to continuing a very important conversation that's taken place over the last 18 months. Recently appointed Supervisor Matt Dorsey also said he would not participate in Pride because of the policy. Thanked everyone for coming to the table with a spirit of collaboration and consensus and getting this done. Yes. Okay, so no new info there, but just another reiteration. But that's fine. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's understandable. The, the motivations for wanting to limit uh, what could be perceived as trigger, living trigger, um, at the same time to ban everyone is an overreach and is not reasonable and uh, disenfranchises all of the good cops that are there protecting everyone. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad there was a compromise. And for those who it's just too triggery, just don't go. You know, there's a lot of other ways to celebrate Pride than going to the parade. So if it's just too close to home and it's going to get you riled up and upset, um, then need not go. I think it's up to the individuals to assess that. Okay. <clears throat> Gun violence. What has helped what are we where are we at okay so biden had apparently kept reiterating the false second amendment claim i don't think intentionally i think just you know metaphorically about that people didn't own cannons when it was adopted at the time of the time and actually they were I guess they also did our own cannons <laughs> okay I mean do I want to read the whole thing I don't know that I do I'm going to give you the quote and the <laughs> you can read it yourself but I get what he was saying it's Fox News of course it is and Jessica Chasmere last Wednesday Biden keeps repeating false second amendment claim despite the fact checks okay let's just get to the part about the cannons hold on I mean, you couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment was passed. You couldn't go out and purchase a lot of weapons. I, I mean, he's making a point in a broader scale. They're taking it literally. Um, they're quoting all the times he said it. I don't know that we need to do this. Okay. Federal gun regulation didn't come under until 1934, decades after the Second Amendment was introduced, according to PolitiFact. The Constitution does, however, give Congress the power to grant letters of marquee and reprisal, which are government licenses that allowed civilians to attack and detain vessels of counties at war with the U.S. 
The Washington Post pointed out in 2021, individuals who were given those waivers and ownership warships also did obtain cannons for their use in battle. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Post report. I think he was talking about cannons like in your yard. <laughs> okay. With like torches and gunpowder in your yard. Not the boats. Okay. But anyway. <laughs> I just thought, Okay. The point being, there was a lot of different weapons that the founding fathers could never have foreseen back in those days of what we would possess now and the impact of that now. <laughs> okay. So thanks, Fox. You really hit that one out of the park. Okay. Literally, you were right. <laughs> People own cannons. Okay. He's not saying it anymore. You know, figuratively, the point being, there were restrictions at the time. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about what's going on with the gun violence progression here um, in terms of laws. Business Insider, this was last Thursday by Nicole Godino, as MSN.com. <coughs> as Biden begs for gun control action, here are the measures Congress is working on from raising the semi-automatic rifle. As we know now, he cannot executive order that. He cannot executive order and say, no more assault rifles. I sign until, nope. So then it goes to the Congress. The House will soon vote on a package of gun safety bills called the Protecting Our Children's Act. One bill would raise the buying age from some firearms. From 18 to 21, senators are also negotiating. I don't know. I just don't feel more reassured that it's like, now you're 21. I don't see that that would make a huge difference really at all but on paper it looks progressive i don't know the measures come as a biden <clears throat> as biden sorry my allergies are acting up but begs congress to finally act to control gun violence the recent spate of deadly shootings has pushed congress once again to try to take action on a host of gun safety measures the latest attempt at controlling America's gun violence comes as Biden begs Congress to finally act on it, including banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and repealing the immunity that protects gun manufacturers. The House will, in coming days, vote on an expansive gun control package called the Protecting Our Children's Act. Children Act. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is also soon be hearing on legislation to ban assault weapons, more limited bipartisan measure under negotiation in 50-50 sta- Senate where anti-gun control Republicans are likely to block more aggressive action. <clears throat> Saving our children can and must be a unifying mission for our nation, Pelosi wrote in the letter Thursday to Democrats. To all those in Congress who would stand in the way of saving lives, your political survival is insignificant compared to the survival of our children. The action follows mass shootings last month that killed 10 mostly black people in a racist rampage at Buffalo, New York supermarket, 19 children and two teachers that robbed elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. On Wednesday, five people were killed on the campus of a Tulsa, Oklahoma hospital, including the gunman who shot himself. For God's sake, how much more carnage are we willing to accept by asked on Thursday in a speech delivered from the White House, signaling that Republicans for blocking gun safety measures, this time we must actually do something. House Democrats have already passed legislation to expand background checks for gun sales. The Senate has not taken up legislation. 
The latest package of bills coming from the House that faces tough prospects in the evenly divided Senate, but Democrats are still pushing them in part to their Republican colleagues on the record for opposing gun safety measures. For the children we've lost, for the children we save, for the nation we love, let's hear the call and the cry, Biden said. Let's meet the moment. Let's finally do something. Here's a look at the measures under construction or consideration of what's ahead. Raising the purchase age for semi-automatic rifles to 21. I just don't think that'll do much, but red flag bill to remove firearms from people who pose a danger to themselves and others. That's a common sense gun control law. Creating an Amber Alert style notification for mass shootings. Yes, that makes sense. Assault weapon ban. I am for that. Um, It was banned by Congress in 1994. Congress allowed the ban to expire mysteriously a decade later in 2004. Pelosi said the ban was proven, well, that's like 10 years worth of data, proven to save lives and one that an American people support today. During that time of the ban, some researchers have found gun massacres drop as much as 37%, but rose by 183% in the decade after the prohibition expired. So there's some cause and effect factual 10-year data to show that banning assault rifles reduced mass shootings. Yeah. Senate negotiations. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has signaled he's willing to work with Democrats on gun safety legislation, but has not said what measure he would endorse. Well, willing to work is better than nothing. We'll take it, Mitch. We'll take it. I mean, yeah, it's true. I mean, using an assault rifle justification and hiding under the Second Amendment is just nonsense. Um, Going so extreme as Canada is doing to ban all handguns is a little bit intense. I don't know if they banned shotguns, though. I think Canada still allows shotguns up there. But they were going to ban it. Like, yeah, that's too extreme for America, for sure. But, I mean, it makes sense that banning assault rifles would reduce mass shootings because with mass shootings, your whole goal is to take out as many with you. Usually the gunman is going to kill themselves too, usually. And they want to take out as many as possible. So if you're handgunning it or you are, you know, recharge, I don't know that much about guns, but, you know, more effort, it's probably going to be easier to have somebody take you out um, before you can do too much damage. So it just makes sense. And at the same time, you know, I do think there's a place for people that want to play Rambo that day. And I think that place is a NRA gun range that's kind of an amusement park for gun nuts to go there and just enjoy and have all their freedom with the guns under a controlled environment that's screened that is um, a moneymaker like a gun Disneyland for those who want to do it. I don't think you should have that at your house. I don't think you need that in your home. But, you know, if the NRA wants to make back some money and expand its profitability, create gun theme parks that are highly supervised for people that will actually be responsible in in a controlled environment and probably have a great time, even a better time than if they were on their own with an assault rifle. So business plan and the making there, 
right? I also think it does need to kind of become stigmatic for um, senators who are running for political office to be super clear and have all their constituents be very clear on where they stand on gun control. So, particularly assault rifles. And I think the category of people that are anti-assault rifles get elected, and the people that are for assault rifles don't get elected. And I think that's how we work it, right? Because we can't rely on the president's executive sweeping powers, apparently. And so it goes to Congress, and we know the Dems are for it, so then it just goes to the Senate Republicans. And then, so I, you know, laser focus on that and their political career. Um, To continue, you have to be willing to ban assault rifles. So, obviously, it's common sense for a senator of any constituency, of any political party, to ban assault rifles. And the only reason you wouldn't is if you're in the pocket of a gun lobby who's paying you or giving you kickbacks or something else. So, I say... There needs to be some sort of a compact made where uh, the Republicans and, you know, maybe led by Mitch come up with their non-negotiables, what they're not willing to kowtow to for the gun lobby. And I would say banning assault rifles, assault rifles, according to this research, has proven to reduce the shootings. So it just is the most common sense. In addition to those who are unstable should not be, you know, in possession of a weapon like that. Um, So, you know, the political pressure is, it's not like there's tons of different parties and tons of different people and, geez, who really are supporting? Like, we know who they are. It's a targeted demographic and that now has to be clear, you know, is just as much as everybody's focused on somebody's climate change record or (coughs) any other political issue, what is your record on guns and assault rifles specifically? And then just don't vote for those people. Right? So refocus the gun lobbies to invest in their assault rifle amusement parks. Okay. Congress. There's a limitation on what we can do, but it has to go through Congress. So that is what it is. Just do something. Yeah, we talked about that already. Um, so this week... Uh, They're supposed to be voting on sweeping gun legislation. We'll see what actually transpires. I'm not going to read it right now because that's last week, and I want to see what happens this week. Okay, what else? Biden did a special primetime address. I don't think I can play it here, so I'm not going to play it. But, um, you know, he hit all the points. It was worthy of a commander-in-chief to to give a special dedicated uh, announcement about that. Um, Oh, Friday, June 3rd. Well, it's over now. National Gun Violence Awareness Day. Oh. 
Well, okay. That's over with. I was going to do that earlier, but that's okay. Okay, so here's another article from today. This is from Salon, Julia Conley, June 6th. Democrat proposes filibuster-proof 1,000% tax on assault rifle 15s that would raise price up by $20,000. So you can price it out. If you can't ban it in certain ways, pricing it out effectively bans it. Um, with senators negotiating a gun control package expected to leave out a reinstatement of assault weapon ban and expanded background checks on gun purchases, Republic Representative Don Byers proposing a unique method of keeping AR-15s and similar semi-automatic weapons out of people's hands. The Virginia Democrat said late Sunday that he's drafting a proposal to impose a 1,000% excise tax on firearms like this one used by numerous perpetrators of mass shootings. With AR-15s costing between $500 and $2,000, the tax would add up to $20,000 onto the weapons price tag. This tax would also apply to high-capacity magazines and carry more than 10 rounds of ammo. Business Insider reported the weapons with one or more military characteristic, including a pistol grip, forward grip, folding, telescopic stock, the type of firearms representative David Ciceline, Democrat of Rhode Island, and Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California, are seeking to ban with the, cal- in, with the legislation introduced in 2021. <laughs> Byers said Sunday <coughs> he believes the proposal could pass with a simple majority in the Senate via, via re- reconciliation, allowing it to bypass the legislative filibuster, which requires 60 votes for bills to pass. Right-wing Democrat Senators Joe Manchin... Democrat of West Virginia, and Kristen Sinema, Democrat of Arizona, have opposed reforming the filibuster, obstructing their own party's agenda since President Joe Biden took office. So we don't want to revote those people in, right? No voting them in. What's intended to do is provide another creative pathway to actually make some sensible gun control happen. Buyer told Insider, we think that a thousand percent fee on assault weapons is just that kind of restrictive measure that creates an enough fiscal impact to qualify for reconciliation. According to the Insider, proposal could be included in a spending bill containing parts of Biden's climate action taxation agenda. Buyer said revenue from the tax could go toward a restitution program for family members of people killed in shootings. The proposal comes two years after Representative Hank Johnson, Democrat of Georgia, and Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, proposed a 30% tax on handguns and a 50% tax on shells and cartridges. I mean, certainly good idea. Price it out. It's another another way. We have to be really creative in America because we don't have a parliament government like our allies, so we have to kind of do all this wonky workaround. We're all about the workaround. But if a workaround works, it might be strange, but it would if it gets the job done, then that's what matters. All right. So, do we want to go insurrection justice? We want to do China yet? Let's do insurrection. Okay. So this one says, let's see, Proud Boys. The New York Times. Today's or the January 
sorry, June 6th, by Alan Fewer and Adam Goldman. Proud Boys charged with sedition and capital attack. Enrique Tarrio, the former chairman of the Proud Boys, and four other members of far-right group were indi- indicted on Monday for a seditious conspiracy in connection with the storming of the Capitol last January. The most... Last January. Um, it was... Was it the, the recent? Sorry. Okay. The most serious crime to be charged in the Justice Department's sprawling investigation of the assault. The sedition charges against Mr. Terrio and his co-defendants, Joseph Biggs, Ethan Nordeen, Zachary Rail, and Dominic Pizzola, came in an amended indictment that was unsealed in federal district court in, in Washington. The men had already been charged in an earlier indictment filed in March with conspiring to instruct a certification of the 2020 presidential election, which took place during a joint session of Congress January 6, 2021. Wow, really only was that long ago. Seems so much longer. It was not immediately clear what evidence led to the new charges against the members of the Proud Boys who were central in the effort to storm the Capitol and help forestall President Donald J. Trump's defeat. Another Proud Boy lieutenant, originally charged with the men, Charles Donahue, pleaded guilty in April and is cooperating with government's inquiry into the group around the time Ms. Terrio's arrest. This spring, environmental investigators searched the homes and seized the phones of three other high-ranking Proud Boys identified as unindicted co-conspirators in the case, but none of them have been publicly charged. Charge of seditious conspiracy requires prosecutors to prove that force was used either to overthrow the government or to interfere with the execution of federal law. The only other defendants in the Capitol riot investigation to have to face a seditious conspiracy charge so far are the Stuart Rhodes, are Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keeper militia, and ten of his subordinates. Prosecutors say that Mr. Rhodes led to uh, led a conspiracy to forcibly stop the lawful transition of presidential power by sending men into the Capitol on January 6th and by staging a heavily armed quick reaction force outside of Washington that was prepared to rush the aid of the compatriots at the building. Unlike Mr. Rhodes, Mr. Terrio was not in Washington on January 6th. He had been ordered to leave the city by a local judge two days earlier after being charged with burning a Black Lives Matter banner at a church during a spree of violence that followed a different pro-Trump rally in December. (coughs) Federal prosecutors have said that even though Mr. Terrio was not accused of physically taking part of the breach of the Capitol, he nonetheless led the advance planning and remained in contact with the other members of the Proud Boys during the storming of the building. Prosecutors have claimed, for instance, that Mr. Terrio issued orders before the attack for the member of the group to leave behind the traditional black and yellow polo shirts and remain incognito. When they arrive in Washington on January 6th, Mr. Terrio also helped to create a command and control structure for a group on private telegram group chat called the Ministry of Self-Defense, prosecutors say. As the riot in the Capitol unfolded, Mr. Terrio appeared to take credit for the Proud Boys' role in what was happening. We did this, he wrote on one point on the telegram group chat. Lawyers from Mr. Terrio and the other men have repeatedly claimed there is no evidence that they conspired in advance to storm the Capitol by setting up a Ministry of Self-Defense group chat, by taking other measures like acquiring protective gear. The Brad Boys were simply trying to guard themselves against leftist activities with whom they had scuffled at earlier events in Washington, the lawyer said. The Proud Boys will also be featured when the House Committee investigating January 6th holds its initial public hearing Thursday night. The committee intends to pre- present live testimony from Nick 
Hested, a documentary filmmaker who was embedded with the group during the riot, and from Carolyn Edwards, Carol, uh, Capitol Police officer, who was injured in an early assault that day and said to have been triggered by the Proud Boys. Let's read another one about the Proud Boys. <clears throat> This is by Reuters, Proud Boys leader Terrio, charged with sedition for role of U.S. Capitol attack by Andy Sullivan, Monday, June 6th. The former leader of the right-wing group, the Proud Boys Enrique Terrio, and four associates were charged with seditious conspiracy on Monday for the role in January 6, 2021, attack on the U.S. Capitol by Donald Trump supporters. Federal prosecutors accused five men of plotting the attack in advance and encouraging other Trump supporters to prevent Congress from certifying his 2020 election defeat by Democrat Joe Biden. Thousands of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol that day after a fiery speech in which he repeated his false claims that his loss was a result of widespread fraud, an allegation repeated rejected by multiple courts, state election officials, and members of Trump's own administration. Eleven members of another white ring right-wing group. The Oath Keepers were charged in January with seditious conspiracy for allegedly playing a similar leadership role in the deadly attack. Federal prosecutors rarely use a seditious conspiracy charge defined as attempting to overthrow, put down, or destroy by the force of government of the United States. It carries a sentence of up to 20 years in prison. Federal prosecutors investigating the attack filed the new charges against Tario, Dominic Pozzola, Ethan Nordine, Joe Biggs, and Zachary Rell, according to court papers. All five have pleaded not guilty to other criminal charges related to the attack. The new indictment accuses them of encouraging other Proud Boys to come to Washington on January 6, 2021, raising money to buy bulletproof vests and other tactical gear and directing crowd members into the Capitol and assaulting police once the attack was underway. It said Terrio received a document titled 1776 Returns that laid out plans to occupy buildings in the Capitol complex three days before the attack. Members of the group sought to erase those messages when Terrio was arrested on January 4th for burning a church's Black Lives Matter banner. And prior month, prosecutor said... Dario was ordered to stay out of Washington as a condition of the release, but prosecutors said he's still playing a lead role in the attack. The indictment says he returned to the city on January 5th and met with Oath Keepers leader Stuart Rose in underground parking garage. Rose and other Oath Keepers have pleaded not guilty to the seditious conspiracy charges and are due to stand trial later this year. Three other members of the group have pleaded guilty. About 800 people have been charged with taking part of the Capitol riot, with about 250 guilty pleas so far. The new charges come days before the U.S. House of Representatives plans to hold its first primetime hearing that will attempt to reverse Republican efforts to downplay or deny violence of the day. There are five months until November 8th midterm elections that will determine which party controls Congress for the next two years. The Justice Department has previously obtained seditious conspiracy convictions against Puerto Rican nationalists and alleged Islamic militants, including Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman, the radical Islamic clergyman known as the Blind Sheikh. Seditious, seditious, seditious conspiracy charges featured prominently in the case federal authorities brought in 1987 against leaders and members of a neo-Nazi group known as the Order. Fourteen alleged members or supporters were indicted, with ten facing seditious conspiracy counts. After a two-month trial, a jury acquitted all defendants. All defendants. Okay. So, also 
New York Times is on top of it. Um, is this New York? Nope, it says Business Insider. Sorry. I'm going to write this down. Business Insider. Ay, ay, ay. Drop the phone almost. This was today, the 6th. Breaking news. Business Insider. New email shows how Trump campaign instructed fake electors in Georgia to secretly infiltrate the state's capital to cast electoral votes. The Washington Post obtained an email from Trump's campaign to fake GOP electors. The email outlined how these electors could infiltrate Georgia's capital and sign certificates. It also asked the scheme's participants for complete secrecy and discretion to ensure Trump's win. A bombshell email obtained by the Washington Post and CNN has unveiled, unveiled new information on a scheme concocted by former, tre- former President Donald Trump's campaign in Georgia that involved getting fake electors to cast electoral votes for him. The email dated December 13, 2020, contained instructions on how the electors could position themselves to cast electoral college votes in favor of Trump despite President Joe Biden's victory in the state. Despite the plan, all 16 electoral votes for the state were cast in favor of the Biden-Harris ticket the following day. Trump and his allies are facing a flurry of legal challenges this year. Investigations into his company's finances are ongoing, along with others related to January 6th. Here are the dates to watch out for. Wait. Let's go to back to the original article here. You know how they insert those commercials in the ad. In the, in, in the email sent by Trump campaign staffer, fake electors were instructed on how to infiltrate Georgia's state capitol, sign certificates declaring they were there to cast votes for the state, and ultimately defy the will of the state's voters by voting for Trump instead. I must ask for your complete discretion in this process, wrote Robert Sinners, the Trump campaign's election operations director in Georgia, per the outlets. Your duties are imperative to ensure the end result, a win in Georgia for President Trump but will be hampered unless we have complete secrecy and discretion. According to the Post, the electors were told to inform the building security guards that they had an appointment with one of the state senators to gain entry. Please, no point should you mention anything to do with presidential electors or speak to the media, Sinners wrote in a bold text per the outlet. Georgia was one of the seven states where Trump allies sent fake documents to the National Archives, falsely declaring that he had won for them. The papers bore the signatures of the Trump supporters, claiming to be valid electors, but were actually rogue individuals who had no legitimate role in certifying election results. The issue of fake electors in Georgia is currently being investigated by Fannie Wills of Fulton County District Attorney. In the statement of the Post, Sinner said that he was merely following instructions from senior camp campaign staffers and David Schaefer, the chairman of the Georgia Republican Party. Following the former president's refusal to accept the results of the election and allow a peaceful transition of power, my views on this matter have changed significantly from where they were on December 13th, said Sinners, who now works for the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, a known Trump enemy. 
A lawyer for Schaefer told the Post that Schaefer had handed over all of his communications about electoral vote to the January 6th committee investigating the Capitol riot. None of these communications nor his testimony suggests that Mr. Schaefer requested or wished for confidentiality surrounding the provisional electors. Schaefer's lawyer said, per the outlet, Trump's representatives did not immediately respond for requests for comment from Insider. <sighs> okay. That is... Ouch. Breaking news. Uh, 15 minutes left. Let's talk about another way that we can, um, you know, enact creative gun control. Nevada. This is Nevada. USA Today, and this was last Thursday, by James DeHaven of the Reno Gazette Journal. Nevada to ditch investments in assault weapon manufacturers in the wake of mass shootings. Reno, Nevada. Nevada plans to ditch its investments in the companies that manufacture or sell assault weapons. Treasurer Zach Hanin announced on Thursday after the latest string of mass shootings in the U.S., Conan, a first-term Democrat up for re-election in November, said his office was evaluating all current assets and would work to divest tens of millions of dollars from companies in the most fiscally prudent manner possible. As Nevada's chief investment officer, I have a responsibility to ensure Nevada's tax dollars are invested with the minimal exposure to risk. Conan added in a statement, companies that profit on the manufacture and sale of assault-style weapons present a market risk I'm not willing to take. Investments are fundamentally a plan for the future, and it's time Nevada started investing in a better future where our children aren't slaughtered in classrooms. The move will affect less than 1% of the $49 billion investment portfolio managed by Conan's office. It comes just days after 19 children and two teachers were slaughtered at the elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. Conan said assault weapon related assets would not be sold at a loss and would not negatively impact the Silver State's portfolio. The divestment policy, which took immediate effect in the Treasurer's office, will go up for a vote in the upcoming State Board of Finance meeting. If approved, Nevada would be the fourth state to do so in the U.S., joining Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York City among the jurisdictions that have recently cut financial ties with assault weapon manufacturers. Conyan also says on other states, asset managers and financial institutions do the same. So that's another way. Just defund the gun manufacturers. Defund the assault rifle manufacturers. Yeah. Lots of creative ways. Devastment. Okay. 46 minutes. So, Biden and the student loans. This is by CNBC. Morgan Smith lost Thursday. The Biden administration just canceled $5.8 billion in student loans, and more borrowers could soon get relief. The U.S. Department of Education canceled, let me write that down, student loans, about $5.8 billion in outstanding student loans for more than 560,000 borrowers in the largest single loan forgiveness action taken by government to date. 
the department announced Wednesday. The cancellation applies to all those who attended schools operated by the now defunct Corinthian Colleges, one of the largest for-profit education companies that filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2015. Corinthian Colleges have faced several lawsuits since its foundation in 1995, but perhaps the most notable is from 2013 when Vice President Kamala Harris sued Corinthian while she was an attorney general for California for deceptive and false advertising and recruiting, among other allegations according to the department. As of today, every student deceived, defrauded, and driven into debt by Corinthian Colleges can rest assured that Biden-Harris administration has their back and will discharge their federal student loans. The U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, said in a statement, Qualifying borrowers won't need to fill out the application to receive the relief. It will be automatic, and they expect to be notified within weeks, the department said. Wednesday's news comes as the Biden administration considers broader student loan forgiveness for millions of borrowers. So far, the administration has approved $25 billion in loan forgiveness for about 1.3 million borrowers. While some politicians and econo- economists hailed the move as a step in the right direction toward addressing the $1.7 trillion student debt crisis, millions of borrowers have yet to see relief and are wondering when, if, if any, their loans will be forgiven. Here's what to expect with student loan forgiveness in the coming months. The federal student loan pause will likely be extended through the end of 2022. So not just August now, but through 2022, December. White House officials are zeroing in on canceling $10,000 for all borrowers who earn less than $150,000 a year, CNBC reports. But the administration has yet to confirm such plans. In April, the Department of Education extended the pause on student loans, repayment, interest, and collections through August 31st, 2022. But Michelle Domino, a senior education policy leader at the Third Way, predicts a payment pause will be extended yet again through the end of the year, at least until after the midterm elections. A recent poll from Data for Progress and Rice found that voters might be less likely to vote in midterms if Biden administration fails to provide adequate relief to borrowers. Cardona and other top Biden officials have also made it clear that they are comfortable extending the pause during interviews. We're going to continue to monitor it, Cardona told the Cox Media Group in April. Right now we have August 31st, and you've seen in the past we've been comfortable moving that date if needed. In the meantime, however, Domino expects that more defrauded borrowers will see the debt canceled soon, reduced soon, especially those with pending borrower defense claims, or who qualify for a closed school loan discharge, which means your school closed while you were enrolled or you couldn't complete your program because of the closure. The one thing we can and do expect from this administration is at, a, at this point is a continued concentrated, concerted effort to help borrowers who are struggling the most and provide targeted relief. Domino adds, the Department of Education is really charging ahead to get through the backlog of defrauded borrowers and give them the overdue relief they're entitled to. So that's an update on student loans. Okay. Oh, 10 minutes. Okay, so we know about the gas stove ban that's happening. The takeout, this is by Angela Pagan. This is uh, Monday, June 6th. How the gas stove ban will actually affect you. Last week, the LA Times ran an article with the provocative headline, The End of the Korean Barbecue in LA. What the gas stove ban means for your favorite restaurants. This sounds bad, but Californians don't necessarily have to worry about their way of life changing thanks to new regulations on natural gas. Here's why. 
What is the gas stove ban? And back in 2019, the nation's first all-out ban on gas stoves and new constructions took effect in Berkeley, California. Since then, more, more than 50 cities and counties throughout California have followed suit. Other cities like Boston, Milwaukee, Oregon, and Washington State are also considering similar policies and have adopted similar regulations. Specifically in L.A., the ordinance requires that all new construction, both residential and commercial, to be built to achieve zero carbon emissions by 2023. This means no more gas stoves. However, the key word here are new construction, as this shift to electric appliances did not ban gas stoves retroactively. It only applies to construction beginning in 2020 onward. Any gas stoves that are already existent in L.A. residences and businesses are allowed to continue operating as usual. The ban is aimed at future infrastructure in the hopes of reducing carbon emissions. By phasing out gas hookups in residential commercial buildings, the city of L.A. could majorly reduce its carbon footprint in the years ahead. The reality is that for all low-hanging fruit of reducing emissions is gone and buildings that make up an enormous source of our greenhouse gas emissions citywide, more than the manufacturing section and more sector and more than cars here in L.A. Thank you for telling the truth. Thank you on that. Hello, National Graphic, Geographic talked about this years ago. I've been saying it the whole time. Your carbon footprint, your dwelling, your building, your square footage, how you heat and cool your house. So much more important than cars in L.A., so much more important than manufacturing. L.A. Councilwoman Nitch Raman told ABC last month, I think we really have to focus on buildings, and that is exactly why this motion is intending to do. Yes. According to the motion that's called for the ordinance, buildings in L.A. account for 43% of greenhouse gas emissions. By comparison, the national level is 30%, and the state of California as a whole, buildings account for 25% of all emissions. How the gas stove ban affects restaurants. So the LA Times headline at the moment, the ban does not technically affect the ability of any, any LA restaurant you know and love to operate its existing gas stoves, whether it's Korean barbecue joint or anything else. Adam Conover, fo- host of Adam Ruins Everything, aptly pointed out on Twitter that many Korean barbecue places use propane tanks rather than gas hookups for their stoves, an energy source that would not be impacted by the ban. Beyond that, though, there's no current restaurants that are being asked to change how they operate. It would only affect those that move into new commercial developments in the future. Literally, there is not a single existing restaurant in L.A. that will be effective. Affected, tweeted Conover. The transition to electric-based cooking is a move toward the good of the future. The ban on gas ranges does not punish homes and businesses that are already using them. While it's understandable that certain cuisines need to open flame to achieve their signature flavors, it may not be impossible to replicate these using new methods. Brian Ng, a restaurant owner in Santa Monica, California, told the LA Times that transitioning to electric cooking methods would be difficult for an operation such as his, but not impossible. For the most part, I do believe cooking can be done with electric or induction cooking equipment, but it would require a lot of retraining to get there, which isn't necessarily a bad thing and is better for the environment, wrote Ng in an email to the Times. If the transition is going to be required of restaurants in the future, Ng points out the required monetary resources to enact. Electricity can be more expensive than gas bills, and not all restaurants have those resources, particularly ones owned by people of color. Fortunately, Conover notes on Twitter that in the current form, the ban requires no such thing. Of course, it's going to take some time and definitely some creativity to alleviate everyone's concerns, but the new ordinance doesn't mean it all has to get figured out today. What it does mean is that we stand a chance to stop actively making the climate situation worse each day 
and every day when we try to dig ourselves out of this man-made problem. As for the home appliances, well, most home chefs don't cook the type of elaborate meals that might demonstrate the limitations of an electric range anyway. Well said. Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly think technology can come a long way to um, continue to refine. I think what we know we rely on and what we don't know is nerve-wracking maybe, but I bought an induction cooker and I really like it. I'm getting to know it. It's a little bit techy for me, <laughs> but it sure is, you know, efficient, I can say. You have to get the type of magnetic cookware that will work with it. You can't just use any old pan. You have to have an induction compatible magnetic bottom of whatever you're using, whether it's a skillet, a pot, you know, anything. And then you can put a coin at the bottom and if it sticks, you know, it's going to work. has to be magnet, magnetized. Um, and it does work fast. You can boil a huge amount of water for pasta very quickly with the induction cooker. So, um, but it is, you know, it's new. I mean, for gourmet, I, I'm sure it could work. I'm sure that'll be a special invention for that. I mean, I think we can have hope. So, you know, obviously this doesn't affect those who have existing. It's just stop. It's for new construction. So, um, I think that's fair, reasonable. I want to keep going, but I only have four minutes and yeah, I feel like we'll, we'll wait for the next episode here to talk a little bit more about our autocracies out there. We have our eyes on you. And okay, that's a lot of topics. I hope everybody is getting excited about Pride Month. Um, it's always fun to be in San Francisco every day. Um, and experience pride and, you know, the optimism. And it's also the, the ushering in of summer. It's kind of like a lot of different things. Um, of course, it's nice to have the reconciliation between our mayor and the police and those attending and those just who are just too darn triggered by the cops. Just, it's not for you. Stay home. It's okay. You know what? It doesn't mean you're not prideful. It just means maybe it's not the parade for you. Maybe it's not the festival for you. Maybe not the situation for you. And that's fair, right? Everything's about compromise when you have a diverse group of people in one area. Um, I mean, I have hope for gun control in this country. I think it's just going to take a lot of creativity, a lot of laser focus. We know what we're up against. It's those Senate Republicans. And we just have to make sure it's very clear that whoever is running for Senate Republicans, uh, we get a clear stance on their gun record. And that other Republicans who are for reasonable gun control, and there are a lot, who are for reasonable gun control, reasonable as in reasonable, notwithstanding the cannons thing. We got that cleared up. Um, you know, Democrats are not saying we're going to take away all your handguns. And the paranoia can be, well, not yet. <laughs> no, not ever. I mean, I, as a Democrat, think Canada is too extreme. You know, I mean, it's, that's, it's a little oppressive to kind of want to ban all handguns. Um, I don't like that. But I definitely feel that we have some wiggle room and we have to get a lot more reasonable. And if really the only 
barrier now is certain Senate Republicans who are bought out by the gun lobby, then that just needs to be, you know, shine the light on continually every election all of the time until they're pressured into not being bought by the gun lobby and until they're pressured by their own to, you know, at least have some basic standards for, you know, banning assault rifle weapons, which maybe Mitch is for. He's being cagey. We don't know what he really thinks, but we will know soon. And certainly that is now a 10-year evidence-based. So if we can just get that much, maybe we'll make this happen. Okay. Thanks, everybody.